Hello, everybody, and welcome to our virtual 67 Palmel. Uh, finally, for today, we'll be joined by Jason Lett, who will be tasting wines and telling us the history and story of the legendary Irie Vineyards in Oregon. Um, and now we're very pleased to welcome back Jasper Morris and W, who will be speaking with Thibaut Jacquet, director of Bonne de Matre. Um, please chat away on the side, share with us what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from, and share on social media with hashtag 67 from home. As usual, we'll have 15 minutes at the end to ask Jasper and Thibaut your questions. So a big wel welcome both. Hello, gents. Hi. Hi. Thank Hi. you, Ryan, as ever, and a uh, big welcome to Thibaut. Um, so I'm going to kick us off with just a little little bit of a historical look at the uh, course on Charlemagne, but then a couple of minutes, and then uh, Thibaut will, will take over to talk about the Bonnard du Martre estate as it is today. So uh, the Corton bit is, of course, the hill of Corton, and the Charlemagne bit comes because the great emperor Charlemagne uh, used to own a fair amount of vineyards here, and in the year 775, he actually handed over what became known as the Clos Charlemagne to the church of uh, Saint-Andoche in Solia, um, which sounds like a really nice thing to do. But in fact, it turns out that all he was really doing was redressing a wrong because his grandfather, Charles Martel, had uh, uh, pinched it from them in the first place. Uh, anyway, um, time goes on um, as there is a rumor that the reason it's white grapes is simply because Charlemagne had a beard and his, one of his wives, he had five wives and numerous uh, concubines, we don't know which wife it was, if this really happened, said you mustn't go out drinking red wine because you get it all over your toga and your beard and so on. We don't think this is true, um, but nonetheless, nice story. There is also uh, a good story um, much later on in the 18th century, in the 1750s, when Voltaire fell in love with the wines of, of the hillside and used to buy 100 bottles of red Corton and 100 bottles of white Corton a year, though we understand it's because he'd rather fallen enamoured of uh, Jacqueline, Madame Jacqueline Le Beau, name that we're going to come to again very shortly. Um, anyway, I don't think he got anywhere with her, but he did at least have some really nice wine. So then along comes the French Revolution, and the actual Corton Charlemagne vineyards, or the Clos Charlemagne, was still in the hands of the church at this point. So that all gets repossessed. And a family called uh, Bono Veri, who later become Bono du Martre, uh, managed to buy both the Clos Charlemagne and also some other vineyards on the hillside around it. And uh, they stay proprietors of um, the domain Bono du Martre through until 1969, when the last of them, uh, René, Bonne du Martre dies childless, and it's his uh, niece and goddaughter, who is uh, Madame de Comtesse um, Le Beau de la Morinière, so we've rediscovered the Le Beau family. She inherits it, uh, and with her husband, uh, the Comte Jean Le Beau de la Morinière, uh, they get more involved. And for the first time, there is actually domain bottling of Bonne du Martre wines. So this is from uh, the very early 1970s. And after uh, Jean uh, Le Beau de la Morinière, it's his son Jean-Charles who takes over and he comes in, in officially 1st of January 1994 but he was allowed to make some of the red wine just before then and probably was beginning to get involved before then um, and uh, he continued through until um, enough members of the family decided that they would prefer to sell up and the modern chapter begins which Thibaut can tell us about. So over to you Thibaut. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure to uh, 
to speak a little bit about Le Martin and, and what happens here today. Um, I think I think it's uh, a lot of things have been changing lately in Burgundy, and uh, of course, uh, a few things have changed as well at Bonnet du Martre. But the most important part, the the core of Bonnet du Martre, remained unchanged. And I think this is the the, the number one thing I want to express um, today. Uh, the, the the new ownership started uh, three years ago now. Uh, but the team is the same, and I think the philosophy is the same. I think everybody, uh, everything that has been said by uh, Jean and, and Jean Charles, uh, the, the fourth and fifth generations of Bonnet Martre, uh, is still very present uh, in everybody's mind here. Uh, like I said, the, the, the same team is in place. Uh, the vineyard manager has been here for uh, 15 years. He's been here since 2003. He was actually the one that, that has been hired by Jean-Charles to uh, conduct the estate into biodynamic farming. Uh, the current winemaker has been here for almost 10 years. He, his first vintage was uh, 2011. Um, and a few, a few months ago, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of one of our members uh, in the team. So, like I said, it's, I think that was really part of uh, the deal to, to maintain the legacy of Paul de Martre. I think um, we all want uh, to maintain what has been set up uh, for, for decades and decades. And what we try trying to do is to maintain the quality, maintain the philosophy and try to elevate it if possible. So here we're basically going to taste uh, the legacy of, of uh, Bonne du Martre, uh, so to speak. Uh, 93, which is the earliest vintage that we're having uh, this evening, is actually the last vintage made by Jean, the father of Jean-Charles. And then from 98 all the way to 2014, this is uh, uh, John Charles' masterpieces, I would say. And uh, 2017 is basically uh, the one with the new flag on the house, but basically the same team. So um, it's quite a, an interesting tasting that we're going to have. I hope you enjoy it. I don't know if everybody has its uh, uh, wine spoiled in the glasses already, but what I find appealing is that the, there's not much change in colors. Uh, the older ones, uh, as they are not so much tainted as uh, as the uh, as you could expect, and uh, uh, I can go back to it later on. But uh, but uh, to keep on talking about the uh, the estate, yeah, like I said, we're just uh, simply trying to uh, maintain what has been done for for ages. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the new ownership? So, so the new ownership, uh, so it's a wine oven football fan, Stan Kroenke, um, that also has a few uh, properties in, uh, in uh, California, uh, Screaming in Napa Valley, uh, the Hills in Santa Rita Hills, Ronada in Ballard Canyon in Santa Barbara, and the Pairing Winery. Uh, so it makes it a total of four estates in California, and Bonne de Martre is its fifth addition uh, in the world of wine. And is he looking out for more? Any hot tips? You're about to reveal something to us. Uh, <laughs> uh, only the quality of Bonnet du Martre tonight. Right. Good. Fine. So, um, uh, show us maybe where the vineyards actually are on the Hill of Corton. That would be interesting to find out. So, yeah, if we display a map on the hill, so basically, uh, if I'm moving the can i you have to take take control if you go up to the top and request control yeah uh, okay. it's the under view options up at the top yes 
I remember. Request control. Request right. control. Yep. And you can take yep. control. So, to put it simply, we are located in the coldest area of the hill of Corton. If you look at it that way, um, I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, I need to uh, lean my head on the on the right because uh, basically the north is this side. North is here, so basically the sunrise is here, and the sunset is behind this hill here. So, the right, we're not we're not getting your mouse at the moment. Uh, you don't see it? No. Mm. I don't know. Uh, I requested the. Uh, I requested the oh. uh, do you have it now? Uh, it came up request, uh, and I pressed the approve. So you should have it. But try it again. Uh, people are saying that they see it. Okay. In the, yeah. I, I, I can see a mouse up at the top right hand part of the screen now. Okay. There we go. Good. You're okay. in control. Okay, fair enough. Good. So, like I said, so basically the north is there, right? So the sun rises here, in a, basically uh, where Ladwasserin is, and the sunset is here, so behind this hill. And the vineyards of Bonne de Martre are located here, uphill. This is the hill of Corton, the wood of Corton here. So we're located 330 meters high and all the way down the hill here to 280 meters. And we are basically in this part, which is in the climate Le Charlemagne and the climate En Charlemagne, which is the historical uh, part of the appellation. Because uh, it's not rather clear here, but basically everything here is Corton Charlemagne. Everything which is basically west, southwest, south, southeast is Corton Charlemagne. This far east here on top of the hill, this is as well Corton Charlemagne. Everything that you see here, which is a dark red, is uh, Corton. But initially, uh, Corton Charlemagne was only located here in Le Charlemagne and En Charlemagne, where basically the Emperor Charlemagne uh, ordered to plant vineyards. Um, everything else, which is far west here, or uh, south and southeast, and all the way here, everything was Pinot Noir there. And everything was court, uh, classified as Corton Grand Cru. But Corton Grand Cru is the biggest appellations in terms of volume. So I don't believe this is, that was maybe more tricky uh, back in the days. That was maybe less sexy to sell as a Grand Cru. So most wineries realized that actually uh, it was very suitable for Chardonnay as well. So they decided to displant their Pinots and replant Chardonnay. So that's, that's how basically Corton Chardonnay basically doubled in size from approximately 38 hours to 70 all, all, over the, all over the hill. Because when you look at this, this map, basically when you see En Charlemagne and Le Charlemagne, it was southwest and western part of the hill. Uh, and this is the only Grand Cru in Corton Charlemagne. Uh, Corton Charlemagne is the only Grand Cru facing west. All the Grand Cru in Burgundy that you will see will be facing east to southeast, will be in this area. And I think this is, it makes a, a great deal of uh, what Corton Charlemagne is. Uh, this exposition, but also uh, the, the reunion of all elements. Here, when I'm saying all elements, I'm talking about the valley of Pernod Vergeles from here, which acts as, as a funnel. So uh, it ventilates our vines uh, all the time, which means that we don't have as much uh, uh, stress. Uh, whenever we have rain showers, it ventilates our vines so we don't have too much humidity. 
being faced uh, southwest and west, we have really the, the prime uh, time of sunshine all day long. Basically, the sun rises here uh, behind Alscorton, and so we have just a gentle shades of lights um, morning time without the excessive heat, and we have the sunshine all day long until 10 p.m. in summer. The sunset is here really around 10 p.m. So we really have this this sunshine uh, during the growing season, which is really really key for us to have the, the perfect maturity. The heat of Corton as well uh, comes in with a lot of stress, of course, but maybe not as, not as much because uh, the the wood on top of the hill. Uh, is perfect to bring the richness of ecosystem, but also works as a drain. Um, so it gets water in winter to re-give it in, uh, in springtime. So we don't have too much uh, hydric stress. And the fact that we have this funnel that brings a lot of uh, wind, we don't have as much thermic stress as we, as we would have maybe if we were in the east. That's why earlier I said that we are here in the coolest area of uh, the hill of Corton. Afterwards, I can maybe talk a little bit of uh, the terroir, but maybe we have other questions to review before that, because there's, there's a uh, plurality of terroir on the hill of Corton, especially where we are located on the top of the hill all the way down. But I think this is something quite interesting when we, when we come to uh, tasting the wines. Maybe we should, uh, we could maybe look at the first wine and then bring in all the terroir. Sure. Sure, sure. So 2017, I suggest that we start from basically what we do today. Uh, so the youngest till the uh, oldest. Uh, 2017 is uh, is really, uh, really, of course, it's still a baby today, but this is really a wine that we love here. We we, uh, we try to remain humble, but we, we're quite uh, proud of, of this wine. I think uh, 2017 was the vintage of this decade in, uh, for the white in Burgundy. Uh, to put it simply, to me, 2017 is uh, the upgraded version of 2014. I really exactly. love the, the vibrancy that it has, this, this, uh, this sparkle that, that it gives, uh, metaphorically uh, sparkle. But this, uh, this uh, uh, I don't know, there's, there's, there's more vibrancy, it's, it's lean, but it's... Uh, what I like with, uh, and Jean-Charles always talked to me about uh, Bonne du Matre in this way, uh, the sense of Corton Chalamagne, that it's a wine with sense of texture that is mouth filling but never overwhelming you have this acidity this uh, this chalky uh, aspect the sense of minerality that brings the wine forward and uh, and i think he always uh, mentioned uh, uh, the sunshine that uh, the vines uh, benefit from on the hill of corton and that we see to me this is a liquid sunshine you have something really bright on the palette and that makes everything comes together and and if we talk about terroir, that would be quite interesting to see maybe the, the, the second map that we have. So I can show you the different aspects that we have on the, on the hill. Right, wait for it's magic. Here it comes. No, that's still the first map. Yeah, the other one. Well, we can see what's on your computer now. This is very interesting, Ronan. Giving away lots of secrets. <laughs> We lost the other map for the time being. But uh, yeah. Um, Maybe start talking about the soil and then the map will pop up in a second. Uh, 2017 was, yeah, 2017 was, was a great vintage, I think, for all of us uh, in Burgundy. Mm. Was, uh, we, had, uh, we had no excess. We had, we had a great amount of, uh, of light. We had a proper maturity and um, 
at, at the harvest um, late August, early September, we had a, a very uh, a beautiful golden fruit and in very clean aspects. So there was nothing uh, really to, uh, to do. You have, do, you have the, do you have the harvest dates for 2017? Uh, top of my mind, I think it's, uh, it's uh, we started on uh, August 31st and we ended on uh, September 6th. Okay, All right, so that would be pretty early. It's definitely earlier than 2014 then. Yeah, oh yes, yeah, yeah. 20, 2014, we started uh, mid-September, I think. Uh, yes. If I'm not wrong, yeah, we started on the 16th of September. So here okay, we see... Okay, do you want map. to take control of the map? Yeah, so... so here, as you see the map, basically, I, we oriented it uh, in a different way. Um, so that if I move the mouse, do you see it? Or? Yes, we do. Okay. So basically, here we enlightened. So, so what you see in dark here is the, is the wood of Torton. And uh, we enlightened here. I don't think you've taken control of it, Thibaut. I didn't? No, not your mouse. No, okay. Not your mouse. Okay. Okay, I'm requesting there it. Go. That should work. Okay. There you go. All right. So, so here in dark is the wood of Corton. Basically, north is there. And we enlightened basically the historical area of Corton Charlemagne, which is the En Charlemagne and Le Charlemagne climate. Basically, En Charlemagne is related to Pernod Vergeles, which is the village here where Bonne du Martre is located. And Le Charlemagne is the climate related to Alos Corton, which is the village here. Um, and our vineyards are located uphill all the way down. See, everything that you see in the yellow is Bonnet-Martres holdings. What you see in red here and there is our Corton red, our Pinot Noir. And what's very interesting to us is the plurality of terroir that we see uh, on the hill. To us, we really consider three different microclimates, uphill, middle hill, and downhill are very different uh, soil and subsoil composition, um, composition yes, Ex uh, exposition towards the sun, yes. Yes. water circulation within the soil, uh, exposition towards the, uh, the winds, and it, all in all, it really makes uh, three completely different ones. Uh, if you came to taste at Bonnet Marche in winter, that would be very interesting that I made you try, made you taste those three different blocks, but we have uh, 17 plots of Charlemagne but basically we can consider three blocks uh, within, uh, within it where we are, are 50, uh, 17 uh, uh, blocks of Charlemagne and Corton. But basically here uh, uphill, uh, we're on top of the hill. Uh, the bedrock, uh, the soil is very thin. Uh, we are very close to the bedrock. It's, this is where the poor soil, mostly uh, chalk, uh, limestone, uh, Sandy Marne, and this is where basically we get uh, the minerality, the chalky aspect of the wine. We don't have something too complex, we have something rather lean, rather sharp. This is where we get our precision. Mid blocks here, uh, we have something that would bring some uh, more texture to the wine. Uh, the soil has more silts, marl, false marl, chalk and limestone within the soil, and here we still have this, uh, this lean uh, profile of our Corton Charlemagne, but we already have more dimensions, more, um, more texture uh, in the wine. And down the hill, this is deep red soil, clay soil, where here basically back in the days, there was a lot of Corton red, 
here because uh, as you know as you may know red, red soil is usually very good for red wine you know salt which is full of iron um, and here we have uh, clay uh, and a bit of limestone as well and here this is where we're going to get the power the richness the opulence of Corton Charlemagne. Now what, what's very interesting to us and I think this is what makes Bonnet de Martre unique that we enjoy, we have the chance to encompass all those different aspects of the terroir present on the hill of Corton to make it uh, the most ex exhaustive expression of Corton Charlemagne. Our expression, our image of Corton Charlemagne, but what we believe is the, the, the most exhaustive one. And, and we have the chance that whenever we make the wine, we try to really fit those different plots, those different aspects of the terroir we made them fit together perfectly and so that we never undergo a vintage. Uh, if there's a vintage that, that is lacking of sun, um, we have the chance to have those blocks down the hill to bring some, uh, to bring some, uh, some power, some uh, structure to the wine. If we have a, uh, a warm vintage, uh, like let's say 2015 uh, or 2018 as the latest, we can actually rebalance the wine with the upper blocks, which see less the sun. They are more western, uh, west faces, uh, west faced. Um, they are, on, like I said, uh, plots where we bring uh, more uh, minerality to the wine. So, if we need to dismiss at some point some plots or some barrels to the final wine, we don't hesitate. I think this is the what makes Bonnet de Martre again quite unique is to have the chance to encompass all those different aspects of the terroir to make one sort of wine. So uh, I can follow up on that. So there may be certain vintages in which you don't make full production because you choose to declassify or remove a percentage which you think would unbalance in one direction. So what yeah. do you do with that wine? So we don't declassify it. We don't do a second wine. I think Bonnet de Martre is known for producing only Grand Cru and we want to remain as such. I think uh, uh, we put uh, all our efforts in, in making Grand Cru wines and we don't want to uh, disseminate our work in, in different labels. So we sell in barrels to Negos, uh, the barrels right. that we don't have. Okay. And so basically this really happens that at the very end, uh, not the very end, at the very end of the barreling time. Uh, let's say for 2019, we didn't decide yet what we're going to keep and what we're going to dismiss. We don't know yet, we might not dismiss any, but if we do dismiss uh, some barrels, we will decide that, uh, let's say, end of this month, early next month. Okay. Before, before all the wines are racked off and put into uh, tanks for another six months. Mm. And did you keep everything in 2017 or did you yeah. sell off a bit? 2017 was, was just uh, perfect in all aspects. So we kept everything. We, kept everything. we were quite happy with that because 20, uh, 2012, 13, 14, 15 and 16, we were highly damaged in production due to uh, different uh, climatic uh, uh, issues that we had. Uh, so 2017, we were really, really glad to have a full production. Mm. And of course, from 2019, uh, it's a smaller crop anyway, but also some of the vineyards are now being um, uh, run by, managed by um, the Mendela Romani Conti. Is that correct? And yes. could you explain the story and, and maybe show us, I think you told me that it's a little bit from all three sectors. Yes, yes, there is. Uh, um, it came from two uh, aspects. Uh, one aspect in the cellar and one aspect in the vineyard. Um, when basically Stan Cranky took over, he asked the team how we could 
maintain things as they are, how they are, or how could we improve them? And um, one of the answers that we, we wanted to elevate the quality of our, um, of our carton salomine, so we did some blends and uh, we realized that there were some blocks or hard blocks that we didn't need to create our image of carton salomine. What we do, we really try to, to blend the blocks that fits best together and there were some that were duplicates. They were not less good. They were just as good, but it was just duplicates of others that we had. So we didn't necessarily need, that, need them to remain as precise or to even be more precise in our, in our final wine, in our final blend. And in the vineyard, there was, um, we had a kind of a uh, management, uh, staff management issue where basically with the climatic evolutions, uh, we needed more staff to work uh, properly uh, under biodynamic farming. We wanted to elevate the precision of our farming, but uh, we needed more hands. And finding hands that stay, hands that understand our philosophy, uh, is not always easy. Basically, we would need to have one worker per hectare to be fully efficient, very precise. Because you, as you know, with the climatic changes, we need to speak with one voice whenever we do something. We need to be very efficient and very fast. Um, we, so we would need to have one worker per hectare. We have 11 hectares. We would need to double the staff. Uh, and we try to find people, but uh, it's not easy. I think uh, if you talk to a few of the wineries in Burgundy, they will tell you the same. It's not easy to find uh, the right people that stay uh, uh, with you on the long run. Uh, so, so it came out as a solution, like if we had a lesser land to focus on, then we could elevate the precision of our farming. And, uh, and in the cellar, we realized that having selected the proper blocks that work well together, then we could even, even produce a greater Corton Salomon. So of course, we didn't want to disbalance the three different climates that we have on the hill. Uh, we selected the ones that, like I said, were duplicates that we didn't need. So, uh, we introduced them to uh, Aubert de Villain, uh, which uh, we knew uh, might be interested to have another food on the hill of Corton. And we are very happy that is actually uh, an estate of such uh, uh, fame and, and uh, for, for its quality and dedication to, uh, to bring uh, Burgundy uh, forward. And uh, they have, I think uh, we have shared values. Uh, they work in the biodynamic farming as well. And I think that will be uh, a beautiful, uh, beautiful name to put uh, Corton Charlemagne uh, even further on the map. I think that's a great idea. You could have suggested maybe a swap for uh, a little bit of Latache, but uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> could have been fun. Yeah. Um, now that's really interesting to know, and uh, I think it can only help everybody. It's great to have a, a Bonnet du Martre is the locomotive for Corton Charlemagne, but it can't do any harm at all to have uh, Domingo Romney Conti also joining uh, the producers as they have done, of course, a few years earlier with, with Red Corton. Mm -hmm. So the 2017 is, is your baby in the sense that, uh, when did you join the domain yourself? For the 2017 harvest. Yes, you were there for the harvest. So this is not only, not only you talking about this, but you even picked the grapes for this. <laughs> I was um, and you made the bold call that for you it's the best vintage of the decade. Um, many people are probably big fans of... Not, not because I was there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> many people are big fans of 2014 and like 2017 as well. Um, 
so uh, maybe maybe time to to take a little look at uh, 2014. Sure. Well, that was 2017 because I really like it. Yeah. yeah. Keep a bit back. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that I believe all these wines have um, been sourced from UK agents, Corny and Barrow, who of course yes, from you. And that as we go further down and get to older vintages, these are wines which will have been reconditioned at the domain. Yes, the 1998 has been reconditioned, um, but that's the only one here. That's the only one. Okay, well, yeah. we'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah, sure. And what we don't see, because we have got these lovely little sample bottles, is uh, these days, are you um, using cork or are you using a diam closure or any other form of closure? Still the cork, still, still the cork, okay. and it's still very important for us to keep the cork. Okay. I think I think cork, of course, uh, uh, it's you, you never have uh, one hundred percent chances of uh, of uh, you know having a spotless bottle. But I think with the cork, this is what's going to bring you the, the greatest emotions uh, when you open wine. We always put a few bottles in our stock. We put them on the jam. We put them on the guadalcanal. We use emery. Uh, we use different kinds of, uh, of uh, closing uh, uh, material, but cork is always the one that, that provides us the greatest emotions. So we never, I think we don't plan on changing anything regarding that. Yeah. Uh, Victor has asked uh, uh, about what we mean by recondition, but Victor, if it's all right with you, we'll just wait until we get to the 98 and then we can talk through the process uh, mm -hmm. at that. And uh, Kay would like to know uh, percentage of new oak in 2017 and indeed in 2014. Uh, there's always around 25 to 30% of new oak. Okay. So that hasn't changed. And it's, do you use lots of different barrel makers or do you? Uh, we use mostly Francois Frère and Raymond. And we started uh, in 2017 uh, using uh, Centre France as well. We especially use them for, for their cigars, which is longer barrels. Uh, okay. Which, uh, okay. which basically optimizes the, uh, the least contact. Uh, we started to use the bigger barrels provided from them as well, uh, five, uh, 605, uh, 600 liters. Um, we started to use in 2017 uh, concrete eggs as well, one concrete egg and one concrete amphora. We started, we, we, we tried to, we try new vessels to see how the, how the, how the wine behave in different uh, Component, but, but of course, uh, oak is always going to remain uh, the main source. Uh, we started 2019, we started to do an experiment with a, with a globe, which is a glass barrel, uh, a rounded oh. glass barrel. Um, but it's too early to say anything so far. But okay. So at the moment, all these things are experiments around the edge, but it might be that one of them you think, we're really excited by this and we'll start to move it in more mainstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. So 2014. So 2014, yeah, I, I think it was uh, quite, I, I could say a classic uh, year in Burgundy. There was no excess. Uh, uh, there was a little frost uh, uh, late, uh, late in 2013, but that didn't, obviously didn't do anything. Um, uh, earlier in the year, there was a little frost as well, uh, but, but not much damage. Uh, we had, we didn't have a perfect summer. Uh, it was not full of sunshine. Um, but uh, what we had again was in uh, mid-September was uh, uh, 
grapes in, in perfect conditions. Um, we didn't have any heat waves, so that's why I think we have a quite lean uh, profile when it, when it comes to tasting, the, tasting this wine. And again, and again, the harvest were kicked off in uh, September 16, ended in uh, September tw the 21st, yes. They cook, they cook the records, you've got all the, all the vintage books. Uh, Come so again? For, for me, 2014, um, you said no excess, and that's the key to it. It meant that people had a wider than usual possible window yeah. for picking, whereas since then, tended to have to uh, pick very, very quickly to, uh, to, to, to get what you need to know. I, I think the main issue that we had was hail. I think in uh, uh, late June, early summer, we had hail that damaged 20% of our crop hmm. at that time. No fun at all. Um, do on the, uh, on, on the chat comments, people are uh, bringing in some uh, uh, interesting thoughts and questions, but do also uh, if, if, you, if you have a little thought about any of the wines we're tasting as we go through, those of you who've got the wines, then do uh, absolutely please uh, add those to the piece. Uh, no, they're not related. I'm saying Martre Dubreuil. Are we related? Nope. No, no, the Dubreuils are related to a lot of people around the place, but uh, Maritre is not Martre. Which is a uh, beautiful estate as well, for sure. Mm. So we've skipped 16 and 15. 16, of course, you must have suffered badly from the frost. Uh, 16, uh, yes, we lost uh, half the production. Half the production for the whites and more than 16, 60% for the reds, because as you know, the, uh, the, the, the frost settles down the hill and our blocks of carton are down the hill. So this is where it was the most damaging. And because we have those mid-slope walls all the way up, then it stopped every every level of the of the hill as well so yeah it was it came from basically it came from the valley of Pernod Vergeles on the from the west so it ran through our vineyards all the way down so yeah it was uh, it was quite damaging and nothing much we could do that was on April 27. Hmm. There was a there is a distinguished researcher at Dijon University who's written a paper about the frost of 2016 <coughs> He looked at the temperatures at various weather stations and he looked at where the damage was and he actually sorted it completely. His conclusion at the end of this very lengthy paper of about a dozen pages and lots of maps was that the parts of the hillside where the temperature got colder were the parts of the hillside that suffered more. So uh, that's what we pay our academics to be able to tell us. <laughs> anyway, there were a few more nuances. I'm being a little bit unfair. Um, <clears throat> Now, 2015 is a nice, um, um, sunny, warm vintage, which we're not, based, but we have an earlier version of it in 2009. Do you think that's a fair parallel? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I really like actually when when we have when we do tasting at the estate, I like I like to showcase them both. I mean, especially last year when when the 2015 was still wide and exuberant. I liked opening uh, 29 or uh, nine, which was leaner already was more precise and I think the 2015 is going to uh, close down, tight, get, getting tight a bit, uh, stop being this uh, uh, an obedient uh, child and, and, and be more tight and, and afterwards be more precise. Yes, I mean to me two things for 2009 which really make a difference. One is if you made sure to pick early enough 
And I remember Jean Charles really used to be quite keen on that. I remember yes. than anybody else in 1999. Not mm -hmm. gonna... The other factor, and somebody's just asked a question about it, is um, do you think biodynamics, what, what does biodynamics bring to the picture? Does mm -hmm. it in any particular stylistic way in the wine? Well, to us, I think to Jean Charles at least, it was really nothing related to the taste of wines. Um, maybe there was an outcome at some points, but the, um, what really mattered to him was uh, to regain a sense of terroir on the hill, but not again, not, 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 in, the, not in the glass, but really in the vines, in the vineyards. Uh, when, he, when, he came, when he joined his father, that was um, in 1994, it was his first vintage. Um, and until, until late uh, 2000, he realized that there was a lot of uh, vines that were superficial. The root system was completely superficial. Some roots were outside of the soil. There was huge uh, holes within the hill because we had a lot of uh, loss of soil. Uh, every rain shower, uh, we, we were losing soil that was going down. So we needed to bring back, so they needed to bring the soil back up. Uh, um, and I'm pretty sure it still happens uh, on the hill uh, um, every year for some. But um, basically the point was to recreate, uh, to redevelop the wood system deep in the soil. And he met many, many different people uh, back, in, back in the day, uh, talking about how he could uh, regain the sense of, uh, of terroir to, to stop losing soil. And, and he found out that maybe biodynamic farming was the right way to basically redevelop deep in the soil, uh, the root system. So he started out. B before that, in, uh, so the, the first experiment was in 2003 with uh, uh, Fabien Star, our vineyard manager, which is still here. He's the one that basically con conducted the first trials. So the estate was a conventional before that. So half of the, half of the, the estate was turned into biodynamic farming and the other half in uh, uh, organic to see the difference, the, the evolution, uh, the reaction of the, the, the vines uh, in the two, two ways. And I think the first experiment that Fabian did that was really uh, uh, appealing to him was the first treatment that he did uh, of 500p on, on one block. And uh, basically he did one block, he cut it in half. Half of it was organic and the other half was in the biodynamic. And after doing the first uh, treatments on one that was not done on the second, on the second half, there was a rain uh, shower. And right away the, the, the plot that was not under rain was completely shiny. Um, was, and, and the water was basically uh, running, sliding down. Whereas the, the biodynamic one was uh, completely absorbing, was still matte, was completely absorbing the, uh, uh, the water. And I think that was one aspect, it's not changing everything, but it was one aspect that was very interesting to see that how right away uh, the ecosystem is responding to the treatment you operate on it. And um, so again, there was, I, afterwards, there was also a way to uh, maybe uh, better integrate uh, the the entire ecosystem, the microorganisms that are present on the hill. Um, so it was more a matter of respecting the environment and making it a whole rather than changing the style of the wines. Afterwards, yeah, I think that's what we realize is really a sense, a connection between 
our whites and our reds. We sense this, uh, this shulky, this uh, mineral aspects on both our wines, on our Corton and Corton Charlemagne right now, that maybe we didn't sense uh, back in the days. Very interesting. And uh, I've certainly seen in other domains, there is more of a sense of precision. And as you say, uh, uh, it marries into to, to where it comes from uh, very well. So um, the 2009 is a vintage which on the whole got overlooked for white burgundy. Um, people were pretty impressed with the reds, but they felt it was going to be too hot, too rich um, for the whites. And uh, my way of thinking is that the guys who got it right have made really brilliant wines in 2009 and the people who picked too late have not. Yeah. I remember actually something that Jean-Charles told me, it was about the vintage 10 years earlier in 1999, when he um, was sitting at his, uh, the place they had, the summer holiday place they have in the Morvan district, which mm -hmm. is sort of 50, 100 kilometers off into, mm -hmm. towards the Massif Central. And he noticed that the uh, fruit was getting ripe uh, in his garden long before it normally did. So he called up the domain and said, you know, how are the grapes doing? And was given an answer, no, 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 they're fine, don't worry, you know, wait to the end of your holiday and then we'll take a look and so on. <laughs> and he accepted that, but then he sort of thought about it overnight. And got in his car the next morning, drove back to the domain, went out and tasted the grapes, called everybody together and said, right guys, we're going to pick now. I know we haven't got permission. They, in those days you had to have permission to pick early because they had the single, the Bon de Vendor, which was still not anymore. Uh, and he went in ahead of it uh, because he had worked out that fruit looked right, tasted right, and it was a thing to do. So uh, he was pretty smart bloke in, in that sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, I, thought, yeah, yeah, I think when John Charles talks about uh, all nine, he always talks about the luminosity, brightness. Uh, to him, it was, mm. it was this sense of luminosity in the the vineyard that he sees in the in the glass it's always that uh, i remember him speaking of and uh, but mm. but yeah i think he's, you're right he's always uh, mentioning he's always uh, worried to to harvest too late so i think before before when there was uh, the the time of the bond de vendange yes. uh, it was sometimes uh, calling the brvb to request if he could uh, harvest uh, to the three days earlier uh, mm. the official dates the, start, the official starting days of picking uh, because it was uh, um, worried that he would uh, uh, he would uh, lose the pH or, or because uh, he was worried that the, the grapes would become overripe. So, so in in all nine, they started uh, September 9th till September 15th. So very different dates in 09 compared to 08, which was uh, a totally different oh. vintage. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was a different. Pour that to myself now. Yeah. Uh, I think there was uh, late September. Um, if not, if not October, it might well have been. Yeah, exactly. That was that was started the thirty September thirty, and it ended uh, October fifth. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh eight was. Oh eight. So let's let's say oh eight is a vintage that we like tasting here a lot in Burgundy uh, among uh, winemakers because there was a tough one. Uh, it's a vintage that basically we didn't have much lights compared to 09. A lot of rain. There was not an easy one. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to tell tales. Uh, well, in the school rather than out of school, but your vineyards really did suffer from mildew and yes. in 2008 because I used to walk around, and it, you just recently started doing the uh, um, 
um, uh, biodynamics. And there's always a vulnerable period in the early days. And you exactly. were, there was another, another domain got hit a great deal worse than you did. But uh, nonetheless, I've been impressed afterwards in tasting the wines to see that uh, I think quite a lot of fruit may have got thrown away, but you're able to make something really very presentable in what mm -hmm. was a difficult year, as you say. But, but that's true, actually. That actually, the, in 08, that was basically the, the turning point of the biodynamic farming, where basically Fabien, our vineyard manager, was, uh, was testing the vines on how they could um, react with the less and less uh, treatment of uh, uh, cuivre, the Bouillie Bordelaise. Okay, yes. And that was the, that was the pinning point uh, in, in 08, where there was less than 900 grams per hectare per year, where usually with biodynamic farming, you can be, I think it's between three to four kilos per hectare per year. So that was really, really the least. So what was interesting is actually at the end of the, uh, after it got, uh, the odium uh, got treated uh, uh, with salt, uh, we lost 20% of the harvest, uh, but actually we treated those 20%, uh, which was touched by uh, odium, we, um, Vinify them separately after it got treated by salt. We uh, we uh, vinify them separately, and it turned out to be uh, as of just as good quality as uh, the other the other blocks that were not touched by audience. Um But I was quite yeah. I think that was quite a uh, difficult yet interesting vintage at Bonnelli Market. And there's a sense as I I didn't sense it yet. We should talk about how they're actually tasting because not everybody has, has got the wines and so they're hearing what we're saying but not uh, feeling the wines. So I'll just mention for the 09 where the colour is still very light, uh, young and fresh if you like and the bouquet is still fresh on the 09. It then broadens out into a much softer and fleshier wines than the first two vintages we had. Um, so it's getting towards being fully ready to drink but there's no feeling that it's going to fall over. And um, Thibault on the 2008? 2008, well, to me, it's a non-classic Charlemagne. Uh, you, we are leaner, we are not expansive as all nine. What I like with it is, is the uh, tropical notes that we have, which is really, uh, really far away from what we see in Corton Charlemagne usually. But, but to me, this is really the vintage aspect. We had a, a little bit of botrytis. Uh, and I think this is what uh, the consequence of it, um, sense that we have something which is not lighter but just leaner than all nine. Um, clean palates, uh, really to me, a tropical fruit is is uh, what I have uh, mostly when I open or eat. But do you agree? There's also a salty characteristic, saline uh, note. Well, mm, yeah, we I often have that. And, yeah. So I just think 2008, what saved the vintage and also gives you these tropical notes is the fact that um, just as it was looking really quite dangerous, uh, along came this um, north wind. And because there wasn't much sun late in the season, it's basically the ripening finished with the wind, which dried the vineyards out, which was absolutely necessary, and gave a little bit of a, in French, a confit. Uh, so, so the fruit, it, it's, it's a wind-dried fruit, almost more than sun-ripened fruit. And I think that's where the character uh, of this wine comes from. Yeah, this candied nose that we have. Mm. So you just choose different different uh, dishes to have with these two wines. <laughs> exactly. But I think that's the beauty of uh, Bonnet de Marquet. We, 
Unfortunately, we don't have many appellations. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I think fortunately for us, because in Pernod Vergeles, we're just uh, five, three minutes away by tractor. So, so it's very easy for us. We have a team which is fully dedicated to uh, the hill of Corton, to those vines every day, like every day of the year, we are on the hill if we're not in a cellar. So that's very good to us. But unfortunately, we don't have so many different appellations to play with. So Jean-Charles was always very smart in keeping always some wine in a reserve. Uh, and, and to, to offer it later on uh, to hotel, to restaurants, to uh, wine lovers, uh, because those wines have a great ability to, to age over time. So, so it's good to see the different uh, profiles that they have now, and, and indeed we can enjoy them in different locations with different dishes. One of the questions that came in was about premature oxidation, and are there any particular um, I don't know, not necessarily treatments, but are there any particular practices which help you resist it? Well, the thing is, it can, as, as you know, and as you mentioned, it can come from many different aspects and, and it's already very difficult to see where it's from. Uh, either the nitrogen, the lack of nitrogen in the soils or maybe the, the pressuring uh, system, maybe the pumping system, maybe the fact that we were uh, harvesting the grapes when they were way riper than back then than now, uh, maybe because we were overdoing uh, steering, I mean, batonnage. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of aspects, I think, maybe the bottle shape, maybe the cork, there's a lot of things that make have caused uh, Primox. Um, we, of course, we try to be uh, very careful. Uh, I think uh, now that the, the, the system, the, uh, the, the engines that we use, at the estates uh, uh, are used in a cautious way, I mean, uh, are selective to uh, eliminate as much as possible the presence of uh, dissolved oxygen. Um, but of course, we try to, to be very uh, uh, precise with the lease. Uh, I think uh, the first thing that our current winemaker did in 2011 was uh, to do a gentle crushing of the base before pressing. This allows us to uh, have a lot more juice, but also a lot more leaves. And those leaves give, of course, texture. So they are key to us. They really give the sense of terroir, but they also have a reductive aspect. So, so, so it's, very, it's very, of course, important for us. When it comes to steering, we don't do any unless we need it. So if necessary, if necessary we maybe do one or two per week. But if we can avoid doing so, we don't do because we don't want the wines to, we don't want the fat profile of the wine. We like oak, but like, again, we don't, we like to use oak as a spice, but we don't want it to become the whole recipe. Um, so if, if we can manage to translate the purity of the terroir, then we'll go for that. And this is the reason why as well we started using uh, concrete eggs, concrete enfora, uh, another margian, which is another type of enfora. And we try to use more component that will basically help the lees uh, to, to, to work in an efficient way without having much contact with air. Okay. I'd like to add in is that when there were problems, and they certainly did affect Bonnie du Martyre back in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, Jean-Charles Lebeau was one of the people who was prepared to accept that there was a problem and prepared to do something about it and to look after his importers and uh, take the wines back and do whatever was necessary. And I can assure you that was not the case with every producer in Burgundy. So. Uh, I give him full marks for that. Mm. Uh, yeah, th I think it's important. The, 
like again, we have only one label. Okay, we have two, but the, unfortunately, Corton is such a small production that uh, even we even in a wine where many people don't even know who produce one. But um, so Corton Charlemagne is the one and only label that we can considerably uh, say that we have. So we have to make it perfect. This is our business card. The thing is, if you look at uh, wine which is corked, you're always going to blame the cork. Wine which is premarked, you're going to blame the producer. So. You, you can't avoid the, the, the issue. Every, I mean, everybody has a palate, right? So if there's an issue with the wine, then of course you change it. And, and, and if there's an issue with the wine, then you try to fix it. And uh, so that's why we, we, are, we took drastic measure to be very precise with our, with the, our picking dates, of course, but with, with our winemaking, with our aging the wines. And when we reallocate back vintages to our partners, uh, we actually taste the wines ourselves before we offer them before we present them. That's what we did with 1998. Uh, basically, we, we, use a, we use a mechanism that is going to open the bottles uh, under nitrogen, so under um, oxygen-free environment. And the team is going to test one by one uh, each bottle uh, to see if they are in clean condition. I'm not talking only about Primax, I'm just talking about clean condition, the fact that maybe they're cold, maybe, maybe the wine is just not giving us, maybe he's off, maybe he's not giving us any emotions. So if he doesn't give us any emotion, then it's going to be dismissed. Um, if it's not dismissed, if it still showcases a, a beautiful aspect of Corton Charlemagne, then we refill the level with a, another bottle of the same vintage. We clean the, the cork dust of the wine. We put a, a tiny bit of uh, SO2, and then we put a new cork. Uh, we let it sleep in the cellar for a couple of months before we offer it to our, to our partners. And that uh, exacting process is mentioned on the back label of the bottles that we release. Uh, we need to get somebody to um, do some t-shirts about this. I've just written it down. If it doesn't give any emotion, the wine will be dismissed. Love that idea. Brilliant, <laughs> thank you. Uh. But, but actually I was, I, when, you know, so I, I'm just like everybody else here, I have those tiny samples because I was very yeah. curious to see how the wine travels and I find it decidedly fantastic. And I was, I was a bit worried actually about the 98 because it's a 22 years old wine and, and usually we open the wine and we drink it right away. Uh, so I was uh, worried of how the wine could travel and, and still remain in, in a clean condition. And from what I've tasted, I've, I've been uh, uh, happy with the result. So, so yeah, I hope uh, I have the same experience on the other side of uh, the computer. I think you've done very well with this because it was an exceptionally difficult vintage. Uh, for the whites in 1998. Everything went wrong. There was hail on the whites, but not on the reds. There was oidium on the whites, but not on the reds. Uh, the flowering was difficult. Um, Merceau was a disaster. Um, uh, Corton Charlemagne, however, seems to have come through rather better. Uh, I think it perhaps doesn't have the same length of most of the other wines we've had. Uh, a signature not of, not of the winemaking, but, uh, uh, but, but of the problems of the vintage. But mm -hmm. say 22 years old, and this is um, this is extremely commendable. Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, the colours hold up well. It's still got a little, little, little green tint to it. So this will have been reconditioned. So these are bottles that you have checked, uh, yes. and that one you didn't like. And uh, um, would you have um, pulled them out, uh, recorked them, and uh, given a bit more sulphur, or or they just have been bottles that passed the test? Uh, the bottles that didn't pass the test, they are 
uh, yeah, the distillery. Sure. No, but the ones that did pass the test, they went out as they were, I mean, they, so you, yes. you opened the bottles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah, we opened the bottles and the oxygen-free environments. Sure. We, we, we test them. Uh, if it passes, it passes the test, then we refill the level, the missing level, uh, with uh, another clean bottle of the same vintage. Um, okay. We get rid of the cork dust present in the bottle. Right. Before, yeah. uh, after the opening, and then we put a tiny bit of sulfur, then we cork it with a new cork, of course, yeah. and then it slips for a little bit. Yeah. We let it settle, and then we are. Uh, Sorry, just uh, scribbling down some notes. You did say some of that before, but I was I was too busy taking notes. No worries, no worries. Nice. And finally, we're going to come to a wine that even predates, uh, I, mean, I think Jean Charles was around a little bit because he was new, he was planning to take over from his yes. father. And I remember he told me that he had taken control of the Reds because he really didn't like his father's Oh, oh true. Oh, uh, but I think it was still his father uh, in charge for the whites. Yes, yes, his first official vintage was 94. Yeah. Which was a great one, actually. But, uh, but 93, 93, I don't think that was an easy one. And. Uh, uh, the, the yeah the climate was not was, was not really appealing i think there was uh, a, a lot of rain it was there was there was a poor year i think but what i like with this wine of course i didn't leave it at the estates but what i like with with this one is every body in burgundy that i meet tells me that yeah we lacked concentration we wine was just uh, uh, floppy the wine was just watery there was no, nothing much appealing about it and when i taste those was uh, 93 at the uh, at Bonneau de Martre. I really like it. I, I like the, the the freshness, the concentration, the power that it has still right now. I mean, what happened at the time was that everybody was talking about uh, 93 for Reds, which they weren't sure if it's going to be a great vintage. But at least all the discussion was about the Reds, and we now think it is a great vintage in the Cote de Noyer, even though a little bit more difficult in the uh, in in the Cote de Beaune. Um, but it wasn't that people didn't value the whites, they just really didn't even talk about them. <laughs> and I remember at the 10 year on tasting, which I attend uh, every year in Burgundy, uh, people hadn't been all that in enthusiastic about the 1992s at 10 years on, even though we thought originally that was a great white year. Um, and then uh, after that, um, along came the 93s when nobody was expecting anything special and we all went wow these are much much better than we thought they were going to be mm. um, okay. and a friend of mine a Danish um, uh, well he's a doctor really but he's also a wine writer and various other things I was just looking on my screen to see if I could find my tasting notes but I couldn't um, uh, uh, Peter Wunding uh, who actually has a house in the same village I'm talking to you from here in here in Burgundy he bought as a young man um, a dozen each, because you could in those days, of Coton Charlemagne from, uh, I think, at least a dozen different producers. And he put them to one side, and then at 10 years old, he tasted them, and at 15 years old, he tasted them, and at 20 years old, he tasted them. And the 20-year-old tasting uh, he had uh, here in, in Burgundy, and I went along to it. And it was really interesting to see how everything had held on. And it really showed also that the Coton Charlemagnes that came from your part of the world, from the Panon Alox border, taste of Corson Charlemagne at 20 years. And the ones that come further around in the other side of Alox and into La Doire, they're still beautiful wines, but they no longer have that stony character, that real mineral feel, which mm -hmm. is, is truly typical of Corson Charlemagne. Uh, so that was a revelation to me. 
Um, Interesting. So anyway, now we have the 1993. Let's open and pour. Um, team, because we're going to ask you in um, when we have a chance to taste this, those of you who have actually got the wines to uh, choose two of your favourites from the group, um, as we've done on other occasions. Kibo, you told me of a rather difficult uh, tasting you did in Paris, where not only did they want everybody to name their favourite, oh, yeah. cruelly, they were <laughs> cruel to you, invited uh, to name their least favourite as well, which we won't do tonight. <laughs> hmm. Actually, how is your sample, Thibaut? Because mine is showing just a little bit of oxidation. Not horrible, but it's a bit of maturity. So, on the, I, I, so to be honest, the 98s, when, when I received them, well, I received the, the sample, obviously, at room temperature. I, I, I smelled the 98 because that was the one that was worrying me, and I sensed a, a, a tiny bit of uh, oxidation. Then I put them in the cellar at 14 degrees, and I put, put it down the glass, and... Uh, and it's gone, so I don't have it. So that was a good surprise. The 93, I don't have any uh, sense of, I mean, I have evolution, but, but no oxidation in my glass. Okay, I mean, it's a question of individual samples, and of course our samples may have come from different bottles, but my 98 is pure and pristine, and the 93 is just beginning to. Okay. A little bit, but that, goodness me, that's a wine that is uh, 27 years old, so mm. why shouldn't it? But there's a lot of weight of fruit underneath it. Mm -hmm. I'm really on a plum on that. Mm. It's, yeah, it does really like, 98 is behaving at my mom like a gentleman. He's really lean, he's elegant. Uh, 93 is bolder. 93 has this texture, this depth that, that is quite different from the 98. It's, yes, I really like the texture actually. And once you put it in your mouth, I'm losing that, even that hint of oxidation. Mm. And to me, it brings me south, actually. It brings me more in the Morache area, this sense of viscosity. Um. Mm. Happy, happy to leave it where it belongs. I'm going to ask Sophie if she would kindly put the poll up as time moves on and, uh, and give everybody a chance to vote. Tibo, you and I are not allowed to vote, but we can say afterwards which our favourites were. Mm. So please, everybody choose two of them can be young and an old can just be the two you like best can be whatever you want mm. you doke five four three two one so we will declare the poll closed and in an instant we will have the answers so 2014 just gets it over 2017 no, hang on. Sorry, over 1993. Lovely. It's nice to see a few votes uh, shared around all the way. Um, I think officially the two weakest finishes are 1998 and probably 2008, certainly 98. So that's no real surprise. Um, great. What's interesting afterwards, some of my friends who are listening in, they, they send me their own personal views. And uh, sometimes they don't agree at all with what the team view is. Sometimes they do. Um, Thibaut, are you, are you gonna, you're not allowed to say 2017 because that's your wine, you're involved. Of the okay. other five, thoughts? Uh, well, 2014, I have to say, yeah. 24, I think 2014 and 93. 93 is, um, we are away from, okay, 
this is not an everyday drink, obviously. So, but but um, it's truly an experience, and I and I yes, I like to be tested, and and yeah, that's that's something that I will remember tonight when I get in bed, mm. I guess. Uh, all nine, I like it, but uh, to, to me, all nine needs to be me. Uh, and all eight needs to to rest a bit. Uh, they're a bit tight still right now. Anybody who's got them both at home and you haven't finished them, I would be fascinated to see a, a tiny, a little blend between the 08 and the 09, because I say <laughs> they, it might be revolting, or it might be perfect together. I'll get that later. Uh, I do love the 93 once, uh, having put aside that little hint of oxidation, which just maybe the way the sample reached me. Um, uh, but that aside, there is a weight of fruit, a density of texture on that wine, which I think is really tremendous. And of course, I love both the 14 and the 17. Um, time moves on. So we have a few questions, some of which are technical. Do keep firing them away and do please keep your comments coming on the chat there so that uh, everybody can see what you individually think about them. And I'm just going to ask one or two of the questions which have come in. Uh, uh, Michael would like to know how many bottles were produced in 2016-2017. Just You probably might have a rough idea. Uh, 2016 altogether with the Corton, I think we were 25,000. Uh, Corton included, I think, yeah, yeah, something. I would say I think uh, 21,000 of 21,000 bottles of uh, white and maybe uh, three to four bottles of thousand bottles of red. I think uh, right. 2017 right. is slightly more. Yes. Yes, maybe double. Certainly <laughs> double. Okay, um, Jeremy asks with the unusual west-facing vineyard aspect, is there any danger of the vineyard getting too hot in the afternoon sun? Well, we have the chance to have, I think, the, uh, the, the, the valley of Pernod Vergeles again, and that really acts as a funnel and, and really brings winds um, first to ventilate our vines, but also the, heat, the, the, the wood of Corton also uh, helps to really cool down, to refresh the area. Um, so we might, of course, uh, when we have a heat wave, we just like everybody else, we have a lot of uh, thermic and hydric stress, but I'm guessing not as much. We're really in the cold, coldest area of the heat. Okay, uh, Simon's got a technical question. What's your policy on uh, malolactic fermentation? Same each year or vintage variable? What determines your approach? I assume oh. you actually do the malolactic every year. It's just yes. timing. Yeah, we do and we complete them. Yeah, that would be typical of the great majority of producers within uh, uh, Burgundy. It's just one or two who, who maybe make a different view. Um, okay, um, Patrick wants to know what your thoughts are on the 2005 vintage. Uh, I, I have some interesting thoughts on your 2005. I'd love to hear yours first. We, we, we're not hearing you. You must be too far away from the microphone. Can you hear me now? Yep, all good. Oh, 05 to me is to me is a bomb. Uh, I I truly love it. Uh, it's uh, if if I want let's put it let's put it this way. If I want to impress somebody, I I, I bring the oh, 05. It's 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 a vintage that I love. It's a it, we enter the classic classicism of Corton Charlemagne, but, but it has everything. It has power, it has energy. It's, to me, it's like, it's like a teenager. You know, it's quite inobedient. It's uh, full of energy. It's running everywhere, but at the same time, it's, 
is bring it all together. And it's, it's one of the big pages that I love. I agree with you. I think some of the most sensational course on Charlemagne from anybody I've ever drunk has been the 2005 Bono du Matre. Having said which, there have been incidences of um, prematurely oxidized bottles, but assuming that's not the case, I think it is an utterly sensational wine that's got a long, long future. Um, so, uh, Patrick, if you, if you own that wine, I hope that reassures you. Um, <laughs> Simon also asks about the 2011, is he going to open a bottle at the weekend? Should he or should he wait? For which, which vintage? 2011. Ah, you can go. You can go for it. Yeah. You can, of course, you can obviously wait a long time. Uh, it's still lean, but to me, it's, it's like 2011 is a bit like 2013. To me, it's an underdog of the vintages that we have for the past decade. But it's beautiful. I, I mean, uh, every time I open a 2011, it's last time I opened one, I had mints, uh, hints of mints, like uh, uh, how do you call that? That means like peppery mints. That was fantastic. That was really, yeah. No, it's a wine full of energy. Still very young. It might be my only concern is it might be tight. Uh, but it's it's uh, well, actually no, I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah, you should go for it. And uh, Jean asks about the 2010. 2010 is one of the vintages we released this year. 2011, yeah. 2011 we wait a bit. Yeah. 10, we have a few partners that we decided to offer some because, like, okay. it's someone under the spotlight right now. Yeah, to me, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, starting to sing. And will that just be to restaurants or will that be to importers as well? Will private customers have a chance of getting some of that? Uh, if you ask me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, two more questions I have. One is how many full-time people work at the domain? Uh, we are 10 people, 10 people here. Okay, yeah, well that's, you know, ten, that's more than one person per, per hectare. Uh, we, are, we are three people in the office. Right, okay. So that's still nearly one person back there. <laughs> and uh, Jeremy has another question, but before then, there's a question about the concrete eggs. Are they the key to keep the freshness of your wine at warmer vintages? I'm guessing it's too early no. to tell, but... No, the first time we started it was in... We had one... We, the first time we started was in 2017, and it was an experiment because we have one plot which we found the grapes was, was a bit weak. So we, did, we put a part, of, a part of it in um, New Oak, a part in concrete egg uh, and a part in uh, concrete amphora to see how, how the one, we, we wanted a one with more shoulders, a white boulder. Um, and we were not uh, convinced that the oak would suffice. So we started out with this one so that, because the egg system uh, helps to uh, enhance the lease contacts and, and prevent from having any, any uh, oxygen contact. So, so that's why we use that. And the final question, which we're going to answer today, and it's a really good one, is would you decant the wine? The young ones, the tight ones. Like that, okay, uh, the, ones, the ones at Bono always have this phase where the, the maybe a first two, three years, they are very exuberant, they are, they are singing once you open them, and afterwards they just, close down, they, they become tight for, for maybe five-ish, five years, let's say. 
before they reopen. So if you open, let's say, uh, one which is uh, five and 10 years old, you might want to decant it if you want to, uh, to uh, wake him up. But afterwards, that, like, let's say 2005, you don't need to decant it at all. It would be, uh, that would be enough for us right away. Actually, I mean, when people ask me the question, when I'm at home, I normally forget to decant whites at all. But when people ask me the question, I actually often decant the really old ones um, because they're, they're robust enough. They're not like the pin old Pinots. Uh, old Chardonnay is robust and it gives it a chance to breathe after being shut up in a, in a smelly old pool without having been allowed to take a shower or anything for such a long time. Um, just you probably haven't had time when you've been talking, uh, Thibaut, and talking brilliantly. Thank you so much for what you've been uh, saying about the domain. Uh, Johnny on the side has just said that he's done the blend of 08 and 09, and it was lovely, and I've done it as well. I mean, I might have my master of wine ship taken away for blending vintages, <laughs> and uh, I will use it to salute you. And thank you for a really, really splendid uh, explanation of what Juanita Matre is all about. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Right on. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jasper. We'll see you later this week with Benjamin. You will, LaRue, yes, I sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, I cut in. You will see me later this week with uh, Benjamin LaRue, same time on Thursday of this week. Uh, three white wines, three red wines. I think that will be really, really exciting. So join us for that. And if Benjamin can be anything like as fluent as Thibaut has been today, that would be great news. So thanks and good night. <laughs>